I'm a football historian. I, I actually organise international football history conference each year, and I've written well, about twenty books now. Uh, where can we find some of your books? Um, yeah, typically in, in Watson's or, or, or wherever, but the latest that's um, going to come out in April is The Emergence of Footballing Cultures. Um, it's using Manchester as a case study, and it's basically talking about the birth of football up to 1919, uh, which is quite significant, certainly in Manchester terms. So, yeah. Brilliant. Okay. So, you, you, you're going to talk about Gladys Prothero. Um It seems like one of the most ridiculous ideas for a football book I've ever heard So. Take, talk us through um, Gladys Prothero, football genius, and how you found it yeah. and why you love it so much. Yeah, I basically, I, I found this. It was in sports pages in Manchester uh, back in, must have been about 94, 95 when it came out, and I bought it around that time. And I'd just finished one of my books, and I, I think I just wanted to start reading something that was a bit lighter. Um, I'd not, I don't think I'd seen a report of it or a, a review of it or anything, but, but basically... I started to read it, and it was just fascinating because what the story is is basically that a woman called Gladys Provero gets involved with almost every medicine in like the 1930s through to the 1990s. Um, she's uh, connected with Watford Football Club, and she becomes like the manager of Watford for time. But but the story really sort of gets going in the later years when she's helping. England, um, and she goes to the World Cup in 1970 with England. And you know, there's that famous moment when Bobby Moore gets arrested, supposed to have stolen a, a necklace or a bracelet <laughs> or whatever. Um, well, in Gladys Prothero, football genius, he's basically stole, well, he's basically been looking at it for Gladys. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he wants to he wants to give her this because she's helped his footballing career and, and so on. And all the way through, it's littered with these sort of moments. Um, so in, in the 1970s, she's at a Manchester City game and the toilet roll is thrown onto the pitch and she's talking to Francis Lee afterwards and she says to Francis Lee, Why, that's, that'd be a great idea for business. Why don't you go into the toilet roll business? And of course that sets him off down, which he, you know, he, does, he does become a toilet roll manufacturer and it sets him off down to become a millionaire. Um, so whichever moment you can think of, Gladys is there. And it, it's just a fun sort of light-hearted look at, at uh, football, really. And it, it sounds a bit like Zelig, the Woody Allen film, you know, where, where this character is able to be at the centre of you know, life-changing and history-changing moments. But it seems... <laughs> Go on ahead. I think, I think Simon Cheatham, who, who wrote the book, probably had that same sort of idea, really. I don't know if you'd seen the film or, or, or what, but the idea was to, to take every moment to try and look at a bit more of a farcical side to it, because, you know, very much of this farce in there, typical sort of British farce. Um, and so sort of take that angle, if you like, um, and put a woman at the centre of it, which as well is is quite interesting. You know, if you, if you talk about women in football, you know, this is this is quite interesting, but here he is in, writing in the early 90s, and he, he's taking a female character and decides that she is basically the, the, the person who made everything happen. You know, England won the World Cup in '66 because of Gladys Prothero. Um, she, in the '90s, when Graham Taylor was England manager, you know, the famous game against um, Holland where Taylor's losing it. Basically, Gladys is the one who stops him from getting a gun, <laughs> gun and then shooting the referee and stuff. You know, so it sort of takes genuine real life moments and twists them, and that's what I love. You know, I I think if you if you love if you love sort of British farce and British comedy, 
Um, football books are quite often, you know, let's face it, football fiction is quite often a difficult genre to, to, to sort of do. So the best way to do it, perhaps, is to, to make it a farce and to just make it a bit of fun. And at times like present, you know, maybe we need a, a, a bit of fun. So, so that's what Gladys Provero is. I'm just looking at a, a review of it on a on a blog written by a guy who's been doing football fiction. And he says, "Who who brought Elton John and Bernie Taupin together and managed Elton John's tour in 1971? Who launched the career of Bruce Springsteen? Who discovered and signed the young John Barnes?" <laughs> this, the, all of these moments are are Gladys Prothero's pride claims to fame. Where where did the idea come from? Where did, the, where did the idea come from? Do you know anything about what the idea for the book was? Or, you know, is he a football I, fan? Is he a Watford fan? Yeah, I, I don't I don't know the background. But what I do know, I, I, I tried to find out a bit, because I'm, I'm not certain. I don't think Simon Cheatham ever wrote anything else. Um, and yeah. I've never, I've certainly never met him or spoken to him. But what one thing I did find out was that what he used to do was when Watford played away games, he always tried to get some kind of mention for Gladys Provero. So what typically would happen would be that he'd write, pretending he was Gladys Provero, this made-up character, um, and say, um, Birth, can you do a birthday wishes at Albiate on the day of the game? <laughs> and so whether it was Goodison Park or Anfield or whatever it may be, the Tannoy announcer would make this announcement, you know, Gladys Provero, uh, happy birthday to Watford fan Gladys Provero, who's 80 today. Sometimes you get confused, I think, because there's, there are sort of moments where um, she celebrates her 90th birthday and then two weeks later it's her 80th birthday again. Um, so anyone who followed Watford probably is aware of this and probably knows. I've seen stuff in fanzines about, about this sort of thing in the past. Um, but yeah, I think he just... It's hard to get yourself into somebody else's head like this, but but he must have sat there one day and thinking, do you know what? Let's develop this character. Let's develop Gladys Provo. Let's turn her into something that is a national figure rather than just a Watford figure. And there's something kind of subversive in a lot of the sort of subculture of British football support in any way. You know the kind, there's the you know the kind of subculture of like half man, half biscuit lyrics, and and you know carrying inflatable bananas to the game. Uh, there is there is that kind of subversive uh, behaviour, subversive humour that's always been there in British football, certainly since the 1970s. Anyway. Oh yeah, well I, you know if you think about it, this, this came out around about '94. Um, and okay, we got the Premier League, but we were still very much in the days when football fans were seen as being the you know hooligans and monsters and so on. And, and you know, for those of us who, who lived through that um, in the certainly in the seventies and eighties, it, it was difficult. I you know I'm, I'm a Man City fan, and I um, I well remember when we started we we started the banana craze, and you know it was just a bizarre thing that we decided to do. <laughs> and our our team. Our team was absolutely appalling, absolutely rubbish at times. Um, and then we'd go to games waiting for us to concede a goal or whatever, but basically just having a bit of a laugh on the tennises. And you'd go to away grounds and the stewards and the police and the turnstile operators saw you carrying your inflatable banana and it just mystified them. They thought, <laughs> you know, where are the bottles? Where are the knives? Where are the sharpened toys and the darts and all those sort of things? And, you know, the... It it, it it was a weird time and I think maybe that stuck with me because the fanzine culture developed in the 80s and, the 90s, and obviously moved into the 90s um, and for me being that age at that time when I'm being told I'm an hooligan I'm being told all these other things and I wasn't you know I just wanted to watch football and the fanzine culture was the first time anybody ever listened to us the first time we had a voice you know you'd, you if you 
if you were dissatisfied with something, you had to write to the local football page in the paper or maybe phone in a radio phone in. And that was it. You, yeah, yeah. you didn't have anything else. Um, so the the fanzine movement for me was was absolutely incredible, and you know I used to, but well, part of the reasons I used to go into sports pages so often was to pick up fanzines for for whichever club I, you know that took me fans that week. And even if you want to see the subversive humour in football fandom, go on and look at the titles of some of the of the, some of the fanzines from that era. You know they were really really funny and 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 kind of left field and reflected a kind of culture that that wasn't the stereotypical culture of football. You know, Sunderland's was called a Love Supreme. It's fantastic, named after John Coltrane album. Was it Gillingham who had Brian Moore's head look like looks like the London Plantarium or something like that? Was, <laughs> yeah, it was, was yeah. the title of it. You know, yeah. and obviously there's one one effing Fulham, you know, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I think that was the thing. Um, there were also fanzines, but didn't just focus on one or two. One club or a couple of clubs, you know, there's, there's one called Rodney Rodney, which covered a number of clubs. It was trying to to, to be um, uh, be something different, really. And obviously, when Saturday comes, was the one that, that became the, the long standing fanzine that, that we all know about. But yeah, it's hard now because we live in a completely different world. But back then, that was our only outlet, and it was only through things like the fanzines that you realised. Football fans had a sense of humour. I, I was, well, there's a, a famous game between Manchester City and West Ham in 87. And basically, this was at Upton Park at West Ham, and City were relegated that day. And West Ham fans had a fairly bad reputation at the time. Uh, obviously, City had just got relegated. West Ham fans started to climb on the pit, onto the pitch. And inevitably, the media and everybody else assumed this was to fight. And what they actually did was started swapping scarves with the City fans. We went over to the City end and we started singing, you'll be, you'll be back, you'll be back. <laughs> um, and, they, and swapped scarves. And it's become one of these games. It was Nobody reported on it in the media. It's only the fanzines and the fans that actually talked about this. But it just shows you we were not monsters. We were just football fans. We just wanted to enjoy ourselves. And again, Gladys Provo, I suppose, touches a bit of that in, in this idea that a football fan... You know, presumably a football fan has written this book to just sort of poke a bit of fun at the establishment, poke a bit of fun at, at the way football is. Gary James, thanks very much. Thank you.